You know, more and more our world is, well, let's go back 50 years and say our country was shaped by Christianity. I'm not saying we have a Christian country. Sometimes people flippantly throw that out there. I'm not sure at any point that I think our country was Christian. Um, I don't know that all of its founders were Christian. Sometimes people think that. But I do think we had a more Christianized culture, right? And today we have a little bit less Christianized culture. Wouldn't you agree? We're a little bit less based on what the scriptures say, a little bit less. It's kind of less commonplace to think that the things that are Christian, Judeo-Christian ethics are normally right. We don't think those thoughts quite as easily as we used to, and there are plenty of things that are going countercurrent to that, going the opposite direction. And so, you know, it's kind of an interesting place to be alive, an interesting time to be alive. Uh, when we talk about what it means, and we're going to go into this message this morning, we're talking about the early years of David, and we're going to talk this morning about soft music for a hard heart. One of the things that happens in a world like ours is that we have this hard heart. Now, what I love about Christianity is the more we have alternate stories, and Christianity is one story, and it defines your life, and it defines my life. It tells us that we were born that something entered the world called sin and it broke our race of people and that God countered that movement of the human race and said, I'm going to provide grace. He, he started with Abraham. He moved through all of these people in the Old Testament, finally culminating in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? Where the ultimate grace was shown. Our sin was replaced, taken upon the perfect son of God as he died for our sins. And we don't have to pay for those things ourselves if we accept his free gift. You've heard this story again and again. And yet this is only one story. And sometimes people ask me, why, of all the stories, why, there's a Hindu story, there's a Buddhist story, there's a Confucianism out there that can, that can explain reality, there's a New Age mystical perspective, there's a Wiccan um, uh, religion that's really, really popular with you. There's all sorts of different explanations that would kind of make sense of our lives. And even within Christianity, I think there are more gracious explanations for what God's doing and there are a little bit more pharisaical or legalistic definitions, right? And we could, there's a whole range of options. So why the, the, the Christian story? Why believe it? And so let me just start here with that I think there are two major reasons why you should believe in Christianity. Now, I know I'm preaching a little bit to the choir here this morning because if you're here, it's likely that you're a Christian. But that's not necessarily certain. And so I'll just share with you why I think there are two reasons why Christianity shines above other religions if you're looking at it from a, a Walmart perspective. If you could just walk into the, the dog food section and pick out this dog food or that dog. What if there was a religion section, you know? And you could see for nine ninety nine this religion and for ten ninety nine that religion. What if we just thought of it that way for a second? Blasphemous as it might sound. And if you looked at the, the world religions, what, there are two things about our faith. One is that it explains why we're messed up. We have problems. And, and the problems aren't just with the other people in this room. The problems are with you, right? Admit it. Let's be honest. We are messed up people. And, you know, a lot of times there are storylines and there are a lot of stories in this world that say, you're not so messed up. You're okay. Those storylines don't work out because... At some point, you get surprised by how messed up, how sinful, that's the word the Bible uses, we truly are. And, you know, honestly, don't ever be surprised by sin. Don't be surprised by it in the President of the United States. Don't be surprised by it in pastors like me. Don't be surprised by it in the IRS as they do whatever they're doing. Don't be surprised by it in the Congress. Don't be surprised by it at the gas station. Don't be surprised by it in your spouse. Don't be surprised. Sin is something that has eaten its way to the core of the human race. Great sermon, right? 
You feel positive this morning, ready to go conquer the world for the kingdom of God? Onward, Christian soldiers, we could sing it right now. We have this thing called sin. Well, there's another reality, and this is why Christianity shines above, because there is another faith that takes sin as seriously as ours, and that would be Islam. They take it every bit as seriously as Christianity. They say, you're messed up. And they say, you know how you beat that sin is you tighten down and you live by a set of rules. Islam is the ultimate and pharisaical truth. There's a lot of truth to Islam in some ways. They they have a great amount of understanding of what it means to live a moral life. They don't necessarily... I say they because that's not a religion I believe in. They actually participate in this alternate faith that says, if you will live by these rules, then you will be pursuing God. And if you don't live by these rules, you won't be pursuing God. Well, the fact is that you've all fallen off the treadmill and you've messed up your life at some point. And so has everybody else in every other part of the world. And so has everybody else in every religion. And the story of Christianity not only explains how deeply penetrating the problem of sin is, but it offers a way out. Forgiveness is the most important single truth of Christianity. And the fact that God has paved the way for us to be forgiven is the most startling reality that anyone has ever heard. The great, the great thinker, Karl Barth, who was the most important theologian of the last hundred years. Many people don't agree with him, but he had tremendous things to say. He was lying on his deathbed in northern Europe, and the the world of scholars was called to, to gather at his bedside to hear what words he might say as they knew he was passing away. And they said, what is the most profound thought you've ever had in this head? What is the, you've, you've thought, you've, you've got a whole series called Church Dogmatics. He wrote a seminal work on the book of Romans. He's got all of this, these credited writings to his name. But what is the most important thing he'd ever thought? And he just squeaked out with a, with a scratchy, broken voice that was about to pass away. He said, Jesus loves me. All the words that he'd written, all of the thousands of pages that this man was known and to to have communicated, and yet at the center of what his faith was about was just a very simple truth that we sing in Sunday school all the time, right? Jesus loves me, and a part of that love is Jesus forgiving me. So there's one part of this that has to do with you receiving God's gift of salvation, but, you know, there's another part of it that says that not everybody who receives God's gift of salvation is completely transformed, right? Have you ever seen an untransformed Christian? Come on, you have. Just look around. (laughs) Look look up here, because I'm not completely there yet. If you found mistakes in me, ah, join the club, right? We're not perfect people. And, And we need a process by which we are transformed. This morning we're going to read in First Samuel, and I'm going to turn there in just a moment, but I want to read a verse first. This comes from Psalm, and we're going to talk about the Psalms in general. This is from Psalm 143. It's verses 1 and 2. It will not be on the screen. Don't turn there. Just listen. Just hear it in your, in your hearts and in your, in your ears. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. There it is, just the admission, right? The psalmist, King David, who we're talking about this morning, saying, you know, no matter how much I think I've done okay in my life, I'm not okay. There used to be a psychological textbook called, I'm okay, you're okay. Anybody remember that book? I'm okay, you're okay. What a messed up title. <laughs> we, you know, the Christian faith has as its core the thought that I'm not okay and you're not either. 
But we have a God who is. You know, we kind of got to say amen to that, right? Amen. We have a God who is more than okay. He's so okay. He's capable of conquering our not being okay. So this morning we're going to talk about soft music for a hard heart. And I'm going to flip over to Psalm, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to read about a guy whose heart is hard. Now it's a guy who was chosen by God to be king of Israel. It was Israel's first king. Israel, the nation of Israel didn't like this king in retrospect. They almost never, if you read 1 Samuel, you'll almost never hear Saul called king. They reserved that word for David, even though Saul was a king and he was anointed as a king. It was in this troubled way that for, for Samuel didn't want to anoint him. God didn't want him to be king, but the people wanted a king and they got off the path. And of course, they chose this king and they chose him for really interesting reasons. He was taller than everybody else. What sort of reason is that to elect an official, right? But that's why. And it turns out he wasn't a great king. And so they kind of in retrospect tried to act like he wasn't their first king. Let me read for you. It says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. He had sinned and he had gotten a hardened heart. And he hardened his heart towards God. And he started to do these things that were wrong. And because he'd walked apart from God, he started to be broken. And there was this thing called a, 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 a spirit that came upon him. Read. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's the Holy Spirit. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We don't know what this was. It's very mysterious language, but something was broken within this man, and he started to struggle. Maybe the best way to think about it is psychologically, but there's a spiritual something going on where somebody is bugging him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Now, the last story you heard was was David's anointing, right? Last week we talked about the anointing of David. It's the first time this little shepherd boy appears in the Bible. And the next story, you know, what, what what's David famous for? Killing Goliath, right? I have a commentary on 1 Samuel, and it's got all these scribblings on the front. I've never looked at it real closely. And I looked at it this past week, and it's a picture of Goliath laying head down and his eyes closed. But you have to look real close. It's a pencil drawing to understand it because that's what David is known for. And it's what First Samuel's most famous chapter is about. Second Samuel is a famous chapter as well. Do you remember that one? What other thing was David famous for? Bathsheba. Yeah. But, you know, the Bible has an interesting way of telling its own story. And I'm not sure which came first, the killing of Goliath or Saul calling David to play the liar. Now, what you need to know is the story of Goliath is going to come next, and this story comes first. And it's because David's going to be known for two things, but I'm not sure that it's about the order in which they happen so much as the Bible and the writer of 1 Samuel is telling us, listen, this is the most important thing you're ever going to know about David. It's not that he killed Goliath. It's not that he failed with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel. It's actually here that we find the most important thing about David. And what's that? what are we going to find? We're going to find out he's a worshiper. In the heart of God... And the heart of David be in a connected way. There's something going on here. The, the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. And this is the reason why. And you're going to hear it first here in kind of a, a starting form. 
So Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young, young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered into his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer, which is code language for being his right-hand guy. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The Bible has these two types of literature. I love to talk about this. Nobody loves to hear me talk about it, so forgive me for it. But it has these two types of literature. One is wisdom literature, and the other is poetic literature. Who, if you went in the Bible and you wanted to talk about somebody who is a sage, somebody who is wise, who would you think of? Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. He's David's son who became king after him. And he began this whole thread where thousands of years later, Jewish writers were trying to sound like Solomon. If you wanted to be wise, you tried to sound like Solomon. That's what you did. Well, similarly, David started something, but it wasn't wisdom so much. I'm not saying he wasn't a wise man, but he was actually somebody who worshipped God, right? He started a worship tradition. We have this book in the Old Testament called the Book of Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible. And you'll notice, I'm flipping back and forth. Dave, I need to get to my PowerPoint. Somehow we flipped back to the back screen. I didn't realize that wasn't up there. Can you see it now? Okay, so you see that there are 150 psalms, and they take a 1,000 years to be written. The first of the psalms to be written is written by Moses, and the last of the psalms to be written is written just before Alexander the Great and the post-exile. You don't even probably know how much time that is, but it's a 1,000 years. That's a long time. But the start of it and the most important part of it, as far as the creation of the book of Psalms, he's not the earliest writer, but he's the one who gets it rolling from a perspective of everybody joining in, is David. And he writes 73 out of 150 Psalms. He may have written more than that. We're not sure of some of them. But 73 out of 150 Psalms. What does that tell us about David? What does that tell you? What's that? He spent a lot of time writing down poetry. You know, for somebody who is the foremost leader of his nation, for somebody who is leading an insurrection movement for a while, a revolutionary movement in southern Israel, for somebody who is a farmer, you know, how did he get the time to do this? One of my questions for King David, if I ever get to meet him, is how in the world did this guy get to write that many pieces of poetry? And thousands of years later, 3,000 of them to be exact, we're still reading these books. These, these little chapters of poetry that he wrote. Seventy-three of them are recorded in the Bible. They're honest and they're God-centered expressions. You might call them prayers. Some of them are really harsh. We'll read one of them in a little bit. They're, almost every single psalm has an element of praise in it. Some of them have elements of deep doubt and concern about God, and, but every one of them pretty much has some sort of element of praise towards God. And it's the psalmist, it's the writer, especially David saying, God, you are a great God. Now, what's interesting is that the start of all of this comes with a guy named Saul who's got a hard heart. He's been tormented by a psychological or spiritual demonic trouble. He's having this issue with God, and he's, it's not working out with him and God. And so he says, listen, I need somebody to soften my spirit. And what does he do? He goes and finds somebody who plays. It's like a harp. It's a, it's a, it's a lyre is what it's called. It's a little instrument. 
And that's what gives David the license to begin writing music. But he doesn't stop. He just keeps going and going and going. In fact, when he doesn't have time, he actually hires professional people to write music. And some of the psalms are written by people who David hired to, to worship in his presence and to lead him in worship. It's interesting to hear about David because David is somebody who, you know, he, he was given to civil leadership and yet God called him to be a worshiper. It says something about our hearts, right? I have a suspicion that each one of us travels a journey from here to there. And it's not just whether we receive Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. It's not whether we buy the story of Christianity. It's whether our hearts become in tune with God's. And the Psalms are the way and the creative process involved is the way that David's heart gets in tune with God. And he's able to bring Saul into that. And he's able to bring a bunch of other people into that. And thousands of years later, we're all a part of the worshiping body that is worshipped at what David's leadership brought us. Isn't that amazing? So there's a sense in which what we're going to read about this morning and what we're going to walk through is a journey from here to there. A journey from... We all have hard hearts, Right? That's what Psalm 143, 1 and 2 said. It says, we have brokenness in here. And when God says yes, we like to say no. You ever see one of those little children who when you say, do this, they always say no. I think almost every child goes through that, except for the child who says yes, but does no. That's the opposite. You know, that that was me as a little kid. I never told my parents no. I just didn't do it. You know, and it's about the same thing. Our hearts don't like to do what we're told to do. That was true of King David. It was true of King Saul. It was true of all of the people in the Old Testament. It was true of all of the people in the New Testament. It's true of all the people in this room. You like to do the opposite of what you should. Just admit it sometimes, right? There's just little sticky parts of you that don't want to give up. And what David discovered is that writing poetry and being somebody who creatively gives himself to God and involving other people, it's a way of turning from hardness into this responsive heart. We're going to talk about that more. I just want to read a couple of Psalms, the first of which you're going to totally know. This is the 23rd Psalm, probably the most famous Psalm. We read it at funerals. We read it by bedsides. But it talks about the walk that the Lord God gives to the people he loves. Now listen for it, because it's going to have three times a statement of I shall or I will. Okay, listen, the first one's going to come right off. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a statement. I will not want. Because God is my shepherd. I don't need to want. He's going to provide for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's the second statement, I will fear no evil. I will not be afraid. First, I will not want. Second, I will not fear. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here's the third statement. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Great psalm, isn't it? You can read that. Just a picture of sitting down and eating a dinner with enemies all around you and the living God protecting you, and you just stop. We we need that in our lives. We've lost the dinner space in our culture where we eat dinners as a family. We're so busy rushing from here to there. We're not actually getting to the place where we commune around a meal. And God's like, no, not only do you need to commune around a meal, you need to commune even when the enemy's attacking. You need to rest in me. You need to say, I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to want. I'm going to live in the presence of God. I'm going to live there forever. 
Whenever I get next to a bedside, I was next to Gloria Lobaugh, Deb Krause's mother last night, and as I sat next to her in the ICU, I read those words. And, you know, very unresponsive in this situation. She's not able to be there communicating. And yet her eyes opened the minute those first words of Psalm 23 came out of my mouth because everybody knows those. When I used to visit my grandfather as he was dying of cancer, I used to read the 23rd Psalm, and he would respond with his eyes. He, he was on a, on a ventilator, and he was intubated. He was not able to actually respond in any way that you would notice, except for every now and then when you read a psalm like this, he would go like, There it is, the truth, you know. He would have this response. Lots of us have heard this psalm, and lots of us have walked with it. And and David leads us in a sort of worship. He says, listen, even as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even though there are lions and bears attacking the flock, and maybe that's more metaphor than truth, although he certainly faced the reality of it. As king, he realized there were enemies out there who were trying to hurt his people, and there were enemies in here that were trying to get out and hurt those people that he knew about so much. God prepares a table before the presence of these enemies for us to sit and rest. Here's a contrasting psalm. This is from Psalm chapter 3, just a couple excerpts. Lord, how many are my foes? David writing here is absolutely concerned about those same foes he wrote about in the 23rd Psalm. But here he's going to say, I'm concerned because I think they're going to get me. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Very different psalm, right? This one is saying, God, we know you're powerful. We need you to be powerful now. Honest prayers. We don't like to pray honestly. David was a much more honest prayer than we. We have this idea that we have to come up with these important words when we come before the presence of God, right? Do you find yourself... Slipping into King James English, if you pray, you got to say thee or thou. You know, God understands whatever's on your heart, right? I'm not making fun of you if you're one of those people who does that. I am saying it's not about a religiousness. It's not about how you pray. It's about what you pray, and it's about whether it comes from in here. And the Psalms were the recordings of people whose heart were literally just put on the paper for us to read thousands of years later. If you haven't read the Psalms, you need to. I read one a day. I read one to my kids today. The other day we were rushed on the way to school and I didn't have time. And we were going out the door and Noah said, hey, grab that Bible. We need to read a psalm. We haven't done it yet. He's six years old and he knew we need the psalm. And we grabbed it and sat on the front porch, waited for the bus and read a psalm together. My oldest daughter was like, oh no, here we are on the front porch in public reading the psalm. But Noah was real blessed by that, you know. We need these things because we need prayer in our lives. And we need to know how honest prayer looks because we get to the place where we kind of lie to God. God, we know you're great. No, you don't. You don't feel great in your life right now. You're facing some financial difficulty. You're facing some marital problem. You don't feel the greatness of God this moment. Be honest about it. Write it down. I was in a counseling session with a guy once, and I said, you know, I think what would help is if you wrote a psalm. No response. You know, he just sat there. I have to write poetry? Nobody writes poetry in the 21st century. I said, you need to do this. I actually talked to him about sharing this with you. And he said, okay. Three weeks later, I called him. We hadn't gotten back together. He said, have you written it? I haven't gotten that email about the poem you were going to write me. Oh, Josh, I've sat and looked at that piece of paper. And, you know, I, I didn't get it done. And then we sat together that later that week, and we sat at the table in our library. And I said, so what do you feel? And he, he said what he, what he felt, and I just wrote it down. 
And he said one more thing. What do you feel about God? What do you think about this? And he, we wrote this whole poem down. He told me later on, he said, I put it by my bedside. It's the most important little piece of, of writing I've ever had. I had no idea that was in here. It needed to come out there. We, we have a tr- problem with this. We have a problem being honest with God about how we feel. And just two examples tell you how honest David was. It all got started because King Saul calls him into the throne room and says, play the lyre. And what he started to play became the art that we're reading about thousands of years later. What a gift. Well, we're moving from hardness to softness of heart. And this morning, I want to talk about the steps that the Psalms will take you through. These are steps. I picture this as just kind of a journey, like going up the stairs to your second floor. I don't know if you actually have a second floor, but picture it like that. We all start with a hardness of heart, right? Let's be honest. You might be soft towards people, but we all have something in our heart that's not towards God. The the idea of hardness of heart, I put up there a little superscription underneath, underneath each one of these. The first one says, ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. You know, I have a policy with my neighbors. That it's not something we've discussed, but they tell me, you know, one of them, one of them actually did once say, I don't want to hear you preach. You know, when I moved into my house, Jay Deering, one of our elders, went door to door and told everybody in my neighborhood that the pastor was moving in. And I've seen people literally bootleg beer by my door. They were hiding it from me. They don't want me to know. They're walking down the sidewalk to my other neighbor's house with a beer in front of my house. I don't care about this stuff. But I I honestly think some people are like, oh, no, the pastor moved into town, you know. And I'd love to just say, listen, I'm not that perfect. Could you just, we'll open the windows in the summer, and when we have a conflict in our house, we'll let you listen in. Bob Latra, who didn't turn that old this year, he's a pretty young guy. But when I moved here, he said, I can't picture, I can't see you and Shelby getting in a fight. And I said, Bob, do you have $10? And he said, Bob, you're the... You're the illustration of the day. I hope you'll forgive me for this. And he said, well, yeah, Josh, I do have $10. I said, I'll sell you a ticket. You can see it. I'll, I'll let you know when the next one's coming up. Most people have conflict. I'd love to tell my neighbors that because there's hardness inside of our house and hardness outside of our house. And we have these kind of thoughts that we don't want to be confronted with the truth. And so my neighbors have this thought, ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. And so don't don't ask us those tough questions. We don't want to answer those tough things, and maybe none of us does, right? I found on BibleGateway.com this thought about hardness of heart. I defined it this way this week, a persistent inner refusal to hear and obey the Word of God. Be honest. Have you ever in some area of your life just said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to give that money. No, I'm not going to give that time. No, I'm not going to listen to the Spirit of God's leadership. We've all been there, right? We were all born there. We all wanted to be people who walked our own way. In the words of the scripture, no one knows the right way, but we've chosen our own way, whether we knew it or not. Also, an uncaring or unsympathetic attitude towards other people. Just leave me alone. The Proverbs say this, 2814, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. We struggle with hardness of heart. Well, there's a way out of that, and the Psalms are a great way to go about that. Reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms and getting involved deeply in the Psalms is a way of actually saying, my heart is there, and I want to get someplace else. I want to move to another step. So let's take another step and see what's next. The next step is this idea that you can move to a habitual heart. This isn't a giving heart. It's not a generous heart. It's just one who does the right thing because you're supposed to do it. How many of you, if you just get honest, 
come to church because isn't that what you're supposed to do? You ever hear that lo- the story of the of the lady who cooked a chicken, and she she cooked the chicken without the the top of the the pot. And she'd put it in the oven and she'd take the pot and she'd put it off to the side. And she'd cook the chicken for a couple hours and then she'd feed her family. And, and her husband one day said, well, why do you cook the chicken without the top? Wouldn't it be more moist if she kept the top on? And she says, well, my mom did it that way. Well, let's go ask your mother. She's still around. Why, why did your mother do that? Well, I don't know. My mother did it that way. That's what her mother said. The grandmother did it that way. She said, well, why did your grandmother do it? She goes and talks to her grandmother. Her grandmother said, well, I used to have this really small pot, and the chicken was too big, and I couldn't get the lid on it. <laughs> we get doing the same thing for reasons we don't understand. You know, Sunday school. Sunday school is one of those things that a lot of churches are giving up on, and I'm not making any point about that this morning. But, you know, most churches 150 years ago didn't, participate in Sunday school. It was the 1840s when somebody started doing it. 1850s and 1860s got rolling. 1880s and 1890s, brethren started doing it. Brethren were the last people maybe to believe in it because they thought that Sunday school should be in the home and fathers should be leading their children in the word. But we think of it as a tradition now. It's a habitual religious experience that we all agree can be important, but it can actually lose its importance, right? You know, one of the dangers about us in our heart is that we go from being hard-hearted to becoming Christians and then going, okay, now we're going to be religious and we're going to do what we need to do. I put up there the superscription, uh, when the church is open, I'll be there. I grew up with the terrible plight of living right next door to the church. If it was open, I was almost already there, um, okay? We lived within 30 yards of the front door, and if the lights turned on, you're always like, okay, who's down there? We went down. A lot of us lived that life. It's a little bit less than it used to be. Well, Jesus had something to say about this. Now, I don't want to be too nasty, but in Matthew chapter 23, there's a bunch of woes, and they're written to the Pharisees. And what he's saying about these woes is, you guys have not gone to the school of the Psalms and become honest in your prayer. You haven't become people who are authentically God followers. You've become people who follow a tradition, a religion. It's not actually an experience that's within. It's an outside experience. Jesus, if you remember, said, you guys are like people who wash the outside of a cup, but to leave the inside dirty. You ever been to a, a restaurant and get to the bottom of your coffee and seen the remains of yesterday's whoever was there? You know what Jesus meant, right? Some of us have maybe had that experience. Well, he wrote this as well. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That means somebody who's converted. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wow. Jesus did not like habitual religion. He did not like habitual heart. Now, it's better to be in church than not in church, right? So I don't want any of you to think next week I'm not coming to church because it's just a matter of habit. But there is something that needs to happen in our hearts to get us beyond the experience of being somebody who just comes to church because the doors are open or just comes to be a part of this religious experience, just reads the word because we're a part of it. I've been very convicted that one of the ways I'm just a religious participator, just somebody who follows through the habit is that I read the word every day, but do I actually dig into it in here? Does it get inside the heart? 
And we move from being people who are hard of heart to being people who are habitual. But God has a lot more for us. And if we get stuck here, we become hypocrites. And Jesus says, that's just another religion like so many other religions that I've discounted and haven't liked. Church can literally become an idol for somebody who says, I don't want to move where God's calling me. I just want to stay in this normal way. It's easy to have golden calves, golden idols, golden cows, these things that we think are really important but that we worship as though they're they're, they're what God always intended and they're things that are fleeting and passing away. The Psalms are the way that God gets his people past that. Prayer and psalm and understanding and worship, they get us past this experience that is outside change but not inside transformation. And the second step here is that we move from being people who are hard of heart to habitual of heart, but we have to get beyond this. We need to move to another step, and that's we need to become intuitive. I I thought of these words when I thought of what it means to be intuitive. When the music plays, I respond. Do you ever find yourself all week not responding to God, but then the first strains of some hymn you know come across the sound system, and you go, oh, I'm ready to worship. You know? You ever find yourself? We, we sing that doxology every week, and it's because it gets our hearts in a place where we can worship. But that's not what worship is really about. That's just a call to worship. Our hearts and our lives need to be worship every day. Prayer and connection with God are things that transform us, and we easily become stuck on this level as well. It's a good level. It's better than the rest. It's, it's, it's on the way, but it's not the ultimate let me read these words from John chapter 13. We read them last week at Love Feast. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, what Peter's saying at this point is very simple. He's saying, my heart is so in tune with yours, Jesus. I love you. I can't imagine anybody doing anything to you that I wouldn't want to be in the middle of. If they're going to kill you, I'm going to die. If they're going to bless you, I'm going to be next to you. If they're going to hurt you, I'm going to be next to you. No matter what, I'm going to stay with you. And you know the next line, right? Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. I love that last line. It's the first verse in chapter 14, but it actually comes right after this. I was on the Sea of Galilee in the place where it's traditional to think that Peter and Jesus uh, had the conversation that overcame this moment, right? Where Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep. And what he was doing is saying, Peter, with my grace, I'm going to transform your life from being somebody who denied me back there. I want you to know I'm still going to love you. You failed me. You failed me miserably. You failed me in the worst moment in the life of Christ. Peter was not there. And what was it all about? Peter was absolutely sure in the worshipful moment and the night that he was in the middle of dinner and all of these great things, he's sure he's going to follow Jesus no matter what. And then a few hours later, it turns around. You ever been there? Sunday mornings, you just leave this place vibing, just absolutely energized, ready to walk for God. And then Tuesday, you run into that person who makes you grumpy. And your heart goes from being somewhat soft to being as hard as a stone you can pick out of any field in East Pennsylvania. You've been there, right? That's what Peter experienced. He said, I would never, ever deny Jesus. And and Jesus says, you're going to do that before the night's over. But don't even worry because my grace is enough. Let not your heart be troubled. It goes on to say, you believe also in God, believe also, or believe in God, believe also in me. If in my father's house are many mansions, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
In the moment that Jesus says, Peter, you're going to betray me, he also says, but that's okay because I'm building you a house and you're going to live with me for all eternity. That's the intuitive level. It's the level where we hear something and we respond. But when we don't hear that something, where are our hearts? When no one else is worshiping God, when the preacher is not really that great, when we're not actually having the moment of synergy and connectedness with the Holy Spirit, are our hearts still soft? Are we still ready to be offering our lives before the throne of grace? Or are we sitting here expecting that God is going to send us yet another message to get our hearts across the threshold and on to the next level? Well, there's another step, and it's the final one. It's the place God wants people to, to be. It's the place where I believe faith makes sense. You know, we get asked all the time, and this is one of the most pressing questions people have, and that's why doesn't Christianity work? Why doesn't it work? I heard Tim last week, and he was admitting to you that sometimes the people who we all think are heroes of the faith fail, Right? I could make mention of names. They've been in the newspaper. They're people who were supposed to be men and women of God, and they have bombed out. Why is that? Why is it that Christianity doesn't always come through all the way and and make us perfect people? Why is that? And it's because we don't get to the final level. I'm convinced that it's it's because we don't come to the place where we are ready and willing and accepting of God's grace to the place where we lay it all on the table where we say, whatever I have is yours, where we say, whatever my resources, my time, my family, these things are more yours than they are mine. And we have a very difficult time doing this. Frankly, I think a lot of us try to do it, and we try to do it by working harder. We try to do it because we're just going to crimp down. And at the beginning of this message, I told you that's what the message of Islam is. Let's just work harder. It's the message of a lot of pulpits as well. But it doesn't work. We need something else. In the words of Isaiah, for one, he said, Here I am, Lord, send me. It means that we're intentional givers. Now, listen to these words. They're some of my favorite words in the New Testament because they remind me what Jesus was really like. This is the Apostle Paul, decades after Christ ascended into heaven, reflecting back on what it meant to have Jesus on earth and to watch him walk out what it meant to be the Son of God and yet what it meant for him to walk out being a servant. He said this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not yours outside of Christ Jesus, by the way. If you're just going to work to have this mind, it's not going to happen. You have to accept the grace of God, not just once, but every day living in the midst of grace, living in the midst of the presence of Jesus for this mind to make sense because it's so counterintuitive to everything our world is about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in this form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Sometimes people walk into my office or into our church, and they'll say something like, I've been following God, and my kids just aren't turning out right. And I love to say, You know, God has been doing this great job of being a God, and his kids aren't following God right either. I've been living out what it means to be an obedient Christian, I think, and the people around me, it's not working out. My wife doesn't like me better. My husband isn't more inclined towards me. Why doesn't this thing work out? And I love to say, you know what, when you read Philippians chapter 2, it didn't work out for Jesus either, did it? Not at least in the near term. 
In the long term, the next set of verses is going to say that it's that God has raised him up to the right hand of the Father and that he's exalted above all others and that he is absolutely the Son of God, magisterially reigning and waiting for the moment when we realize that he is the leader. We will get there. But right now we're stuck in the in-between time, right? And Jesus was stuck and he was willing to be so obedient as unto death. And he was willing to say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. I love that story that precedes the life of David. It's the story of little Samuel. And God can't get through to anybody else in Israel. I'm convinced that's why this happened. And he starts to talk and Samuel doesn't even know it's God, right? Little boy sitting in the temple and, and God says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel goes to the priest and says, what do you want? And the priest doesn't know who's talking either. It takes a a few times through this whole cycle, and finally the priest catches on and says, you know, I'm not that good a priest, and he wasn't. And he says, maybe God's trying to talk to this little boy because he can't get a hold of me. And he says, listen, Samuel, respond and say, here am I, Lord. In paraphrased language, send me. What would you have me to do? Your servant is listening, is what Samuel literally says. Later on in that chapter, it says that Samuel became a great prophet, a great judge in Israel, and none of his words, literal Hebrew says these words, none of his words fell to the ground. My words fall to the ground all the time. You know what I'm saying? I had a conversation with Carol Deering last week. We had a great, just a, a funny moment. She said, she, I've done this too. She said, I put my grand, one of my grandkids on timeout. And 40 minutes later, I was like, why is that kid still sitting on the couch and he doesn't go out and play? And she asked the kid, and the kid said, Grandma, you put me on time out. Her words fell to the ground, right? Something happened with Samuel and God. He said this line to the point, and he got the heart of Christ to the point where his words were true words. They were, they were speaking the truth on a level that very few people have ever been able to speak them. And it was because he got to this place where he was willing to give it all up to God, right? You know, I don't know how you do this in your own strength. I don't know how many times in my life I've said, I'm going to give it all to you, God, and then I've taken it all back. And I've watched myself, and I don't even know I'm taking it back. Then I look back over six months. Oh, that's right, I took that back. I gave it to God six months ago. I can read it in my journal, but it's been back. Just like, just like Peter saying, yes, I will walk with you unto death. Well, the answer is that we have to walk in prayer. We have to walk in conversation. We have to walk in admission of this fact. We have to say, Lord God, help me to do this again today. The Psalms are the record of people who have been saying this for thousands of years. Yes, Lord, I struggle today. Search me and try me. Find if there be any hurtful way in me. What a great Psalm that is, right? Search me and try me. Find if there's anything that's breaking your creation, breaking your children, breaking myself, breaking your heart, God. Search me and try me. Find if there's something broken in me. When we picture worship, sometimes we get stuck on that third level and we think that when the music plays, if our heart responds, that we're really Christians. But the the idea of why Christianity doesn't really work has to do with the fact that it isn't fully mature. It isn't fully us giving ourselves to God and the way he designed our world to work. We've been sitting halfway in and halfway out, and we all struggle with this. It doesn't work until we get all the way in. It doesn't work halfway. It works partially a little bit this way and and that, but we know we have trouble. We have difficulty. And so we have to live intentionally and say, Lord God, we're going to live as people who say ahead of time, we just want you to take what's yours. 
That's me, all of me, everything I have, everything that belongs to me. Jesus used these words, and James quoted them, and we'll close with it. It says, but be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And what Jesus didn't mean is just work harder. What Jesus didn't mean is effort and write a to-do list that will get done what the process of sanctification and grace building and transformation will do in your life. He didn't say any of those things. He said, you're not going to get there on your own, so you're going to have to come back to me time and time again like Peter, but you've got to come back honestly. You've got to come back and worship me. You've got to come back and praise, realizing that, Lord God, I am again surrounded by enemies. And those enemies might not be some foreign marauders. Those enemies might be my own sinful things, the things I want in my life, the addictions that hold me bondage. God, I want to be honest with you, and I want you to set me free. King David learned this early in his life, and frankly, he set it out for us. He created a tradition that we still walk in of people who are honest with God. Ponder whether you're honest with God this week. Ponder whether you're actually walking as a doer of the word or just a hearer, whether you're, it's enough for you to hear a good message or hear a good song and say, yes, I worshiped God today, and now I'm going to go do life the way I think it needs to be done. Are you walking with God at work? Are you walking with God in your marriage? Are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you understanding what he wants? Are you accepting his grace in your life today? Join me in prayer.